0: and we are live ladies and gentlemen welcome to the crypto gaming institute podcast my name is ben and today we have mr carlos p principal at bitcraft what's up man how you doing today hey man how's it going (laughs) doing good doing good uh super excited to um to chat with you today uh i know that uh you have had a really really cool um journey and i'm really excited to dive into that um would love to really dive into your story and, and understand like how you really got to where you are today.
1: Um, sounds great, man. So let's see. I, I grew up in Brazil. Um, I moved to the US for college. I went to school for political philosophy. Um, at the time I was a professional horse rider um, and my dad is a lawyer and I thought I was either going to ride horses or be a lawyer. Um, eventually figured I wasn't going to do the whole riding horse thing um, after I graduated. Um, Also, figured that um, LSATs and law school tuition weren't um, the best uh, decision I could make. Um, Started venturing into business. Um, I had a lot of friends who who were in business school at the time and um, was still very passionate about my coursework and thinking about policy and systems and like all that, but certainly figured that, you know, in the investments world afterwards, um, it could be a good opportunity for me. Um, I started my career in a investment holding company called Eldridge Industries or just Eldridge nowadays, um, which was formed by Todd Boley, the former president of Guggenheim Partners, um, to own a diversified set of assets and invest in a very opportunistic way across a bunch of different industries. Um, it was like, honestly, the best experience I could ask for coming out of college. Cause we did credit and we did debt Um, and we did, you know, uh, credit and equity and pri- like private equity and growth equity and eventually venture capital. And all sorts of different businesses and financing barges and trains and real estate, but also looking at venture capital um, and uh, gave me a chance to, to learn from a lot of great mentors, um, get a really good rigorous sort of finance training, um, be in a lot of situations, you know, having to do a lot of work by myself. Um, but it also gave me the opportunity to sort of, you know, take a course in, in finance and markets and eventually gravitate towards what made sense for me. Um, Around 2018, uh, started doing gaming, um, build out a games portfolio there. Everything ranging from small series seed businesses to um, a, a larger growth uh, ch- uh, growth equity checks, and ultimately getting an Epic and you know things like that. Um, through that process, became very friendly with the BitCraft guys, who were always mentors and friends, and just like huge like heroes of mine and people that I looked up to in the markets. Um, spent a year in a portfolio company that was both in my portfolio and BitCraft's portfolio called Venn, um, helping them with strategy and pivoting. And, um, you know, after the long uh, end of this uh, long three year interview process, I was lucky enough that, you know, the BitCraft guys offered me a spot on the team. Um, it was a huge honor and I've um, been here ever since.
0: Nice. So from racing horses to now being a partner at a monster firm, Like that's amazing. That's an amazing journey along the way. What do you think was the greatest superpower that you developed? That is like your biggest value add to the marketplace.
1: Um, honestly, man, I think I'm just very curious. Uh, I don't, I don't think there's a lot of mystery to it. Um, like I love hearing about businesses. Um, And when I go back home, my mom owns a store that sells horse equipment. And, um, you know, she can ask me about the latest and I don't know, when am I going to propose or something like that. And those are generally like boring conversations. But if she can talk to me about like the latest business idea that she has and like, you know, what she think about doing with the store, like that's the kind of stuff that I love geeking out on. Um, And uh, I've had the the pleasure and the, the privilege of being surrounded by a lot of people that were doing interesting things. And through that, Um, I was just lucky to be curious enough to learn from a bunch of them. Um, so it really is just, just being curious. I feel like if you're curious about stuff that's going on around you, um, it's easy to, to not get bored, right. To find a purpose in, in what you're doing because it's always like, at least like a learning opportunity and all that. Um, so yeah, I think I'm just really curious.
0: I love that. I, I, I feel that drive to like learn everything and thing so many things being really, really interesting and like, ooh, what's this thing over there? Let me go, let me go jump into this thing over here. When you get that that it's kind of like an itch almost, but it's like you get this like yearn to go dive into something. What's your process for exploring that curiosity?
1: Um I try to I try to do a mix of st- I guess what I would say is like structured and unstructured learning. So for me, structured learning would be picking up a book um, and sort of having a goal, like I want to master this understanding of this specific thing. Um, And unstructured learning is I'm just going to listen to some podcasts and go on YouTube or Twitter and just sort of click on random things and follow the path, right? Um, and I think that unstructured learning tends to be very helpful to me because I can just sort of go around stuff. And then eventually I'll find something through unstructured learning that I say, okay, I want to structure thought around this. And that, that's where I go deeper. Um, and also rely on people as much as I can. Right. I think like I'm you know surrounded by so many people that, that know so much that the more that I can learn from them, um, the better.
0: I love that. I feel like that's, that's kind of what I do too, is like. Almost in the beginning, it's like a kind of spray and pray a little bit around it just to kind of see like, well, what even exists about this freaking topic? And like, who are the experts? What are they saying? What are the people that are not experts saying? What are the what are the differences there? And then how how do you know, though, when you're ready to go from unstructured to structured, like at what point does it tip because it seems like that almost narrows you down and gets you more focused on like committing to learning something specifically so how do you make that decision and how do you then structure that learning
1: i think part of it is trying to figure out if something is actionable interesting and that you can build an edge in right like there are certain things that I probably can't build an edge in, in a, in a time efficient way. For example, you know, deciding that my structured learning is learning solidity, like, would I like to learn how to code and do I feel like I miss a skill by not learning how to do it? Like, yes. Is that the highest ROI in my time right now as an investor? Not really. If I want to switch careers, then, then yes, but that's a different sort of thing that I'm not looking to do, right? So I think part of it is trying to find like, am I passionate about this, and will I be in the zone when I'm studying it? Right, like, do I have a positive feedback loop between learning and like that feeling like I've learned something, but I don't learn like don't know enough still that revs in a positive way that allows me to keep going, um, and do I think it's it's sort of like a good yield on my time, um, you know? And I think like a lot of stuff, um, a, a lot of the 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 ease of dr- j- um, jumping in the crypto rabbit hole or even the gaming rabbit hole, um, you know, four years ago um was a certain feeling that man like industrials are so so hard like I would read about semis or industrials or farmers and something like that and it feels like everyone has a PhD and they're explaining these things and there's 30 years 50 years of market history and like I don't know how we got here and it's like impossible to form a view and then you pick up gaming and it's like okay like this thing in a formalized business way has existed for 10 years except video game publishers of course but, like this exists for 10 years all right like I can I can absorb 10 years of knowledge right or try to absorb that and then crypto it's like well, like if you pick up from DeFi summer forward, plus like the technological primitives of the thing, like you can start getting more alpha rich, right? Or like at least feeling like you're on the track to have some alpha, right? And so I think like part of it is just like, you know, is there still is there still edge here or is, is the market super efficient? Is the idea super efficient that you're, you know, not going to really differentiate yourself by spending time here?
0: I love that. I love that approach. So when you're thinking about and kind of pondering gaming and crypto and that intersection obviously that's what this whole show is about really um at least to my knowledge uh we'll we'll see where it actually ends up (laughs) but where do you really see the edge now like what have you learned about the crypto gaming space what have been some of the learnings um and what do you see as kind of like the biggest um opportunities moving forward
1: yeah i mean look i don't I don't know any of this, but I'm comfortable talking to you about some of the ideas that I've been thinking about recently. Um, I think one thing that is becoming more consensus across you know, a, a lot of other professionals and certainly like a consensus here within the investments team um, is the notion that ultimately for, for, you know, crypto or for, for games to be viable, they have to be fundamentally like great games, right? And we're starting to hear more, like even the, the shift in, uh, in the semantics from play to earn to play and earn, um, and like all the variations of and earn that we're seeing, but certainly like from two to end, right? And like, when you think like, like, let's peel a layer back there, like, why are people doing that? Well, people are doing that, because they wanna sort of make it clear that you don't do this thing just to earn, but you can earn and, and sort of it's part of the shift of the play for fun and trying to make sense of these things as actual games. And so I think for us, there's a lot of edge there um, as a firm because you know, where where we really made a mark, I think since the early days is there are very few people that are willing to finance $20 million AAA budgets, develop something that's gonna take four years, and we don't need you to, you know release an nft one month after we invest in right like that sort of patient capital with comfort underwriting big gaming visions is, is where we've been differentiated and I think that being able to underwrite that risk, being able to think critically about games, um, having a long-term commitment to entrepreneurs that we can show that we've done these things for a long time um, gives us a benefit in in both the underwriting and the sourcing stage right and like ultimately, um, a lot of venture is is really about the sourcing aspect and like the allocation aspect, right? Which is why you have such high returns persistence in the industry. Um, so I think like that's certainly a place of, of of edge, um, but very much like an institutional edge, right? Like that is something like the reason why I'm at a firm like Bitcraft is because I recognize that it you know it's 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 great to be in a team that has a reputation for being able to do these things, right? Um, I think on a personal side, um, a place that I've spent a lot of time. Um, has been on either thinking about the the intersect, not the, necessarily the intersection, I guess, but what can we learn about DeFi as this the fastest moving, earliest crypto market, and like where you have a bunch of crypto people there, like, and we see DeFi evolve. Um, what can we learn from that into how the evolution would play out on games, right? So just like thinking about capital flows and, and really like market structure, or like even user behaviors and things like that. Um, and then the other is just trying to to bring some of the traditional um finance knowledge right like i had um i had really amazing mentors who cut their teeth doing credit during the crisis and like i i was brought up very much in a cash flows kind of scenario right and like it's not where we are in crypto yet but certainly you know trying to think very critically about like what really drives the price and what really drives the demand and you know everything that goes with it um, you know it's i don't want to say it's like I don't want to overemphasize this importance because i think we do live in a meme market with a ton of reflexivity and like like social and like it just like it, it goes a different way um but i'd like to think that as the market matures um having frameworks around this stuff will become more and more helpful and there's edge in in sort of you know thinking about that stuff now
0: yeah that's a lot of uh a lot of really interesting things i think probably what we're seeing as far as just the wild fluctuations. kind of like what you're saying, a lack of maturity in the market and the fact that there's just not a tremendous amount of capital here yet. So it's kind of easy to move the market from sentiment and what's going on on social media and then somebody with a big enough bag can make a move and then, you know, that then leads to a lot of other moves because people are looking at this stuff because a lot of times they're overexposed and so that, you know, they're just hawking it. But so... Yeah, so to like there was
1: this um, there was mm-hmm. this amazing, there was a up only podcast or episode with um, Tetranode. and uh, one of the quotes was something like, "I used to dream of making money. Now I dream of cornering the markets." <laughs> it's <laughs> like, dude, like, it's like this is what happens when liquidity is too thin, right? But like, hey, all my respect to him.
0: That's hilarious. That's hilarious. But yeah, and so I really actually love the the approach of, okay, well, we think it's coming. Yes, liquidity is low, but if we develop good frameworks now, then as the as the liquidity eventually comes to this market that we believe is going to eventually go up into the right, then we'll have a really good edge because we've been building these models and learning this whole time. Is that kind of the thesis? Yeah.
1: Look, I don't want to pretend that we're building like fancy models and setting up to be a a, a quant shop, but it's really more of like the the mental model the um, permeation or um, spreading the the knowledge across the firm um, you know beyond just the people that are focused on the crypto stuff every day i mean ultimately um there's compound interest on knowledge too right and if we can be thinking about this stuff and analyzing things through a framework and trying to hold ourselves to a standard that frankly is impossible to meet on most opportunities because it's just not mature enough for you to sort of look at them that way um, then I think that you know, as, as more information um, becomes available, the easier it is for us to start pricing that in and, and sort of feed them into a pre-existing rigor or attempt towards rigor um, than, than sort of waking up three years from now and saying like, oh my God, this market's mature. Like how do we behave like mature investors now, right?
0: Oh, that's fascinating. So can you kind of break down, obviously... Uh, Some of it's probably kind of like a trade secret. I'm not, you know, not asking uh, to go too deep to get you in trouble at all. But just from like a how to think about it, um, how what is that rigor? Like, what is that level of rigor? What's kind of the exercise that you go through or the, the process you go through from, okay, I have an idea and a potential like the inklings of a thesis until actual allocation. Like how what does that process look like?
1: Um I don't think our process is too different from from many others at like the, the 30,000 foot view, right? We talk to entrepreneurs. Um it's the great privilege of the job is to be able to talk to smarter people than me like every day. Um and you know, we a lot of times we like a bunch of them, um and then a few of those times we really really love what they're building and think it's, you know, there's there's something that we should look further um we try to basically get to risk adjusted returns right like in the end of the day i think it's it's sort of like what you target in the end of the day is is just risk adjusted return um over some sort of like benchmark and what you're trying to do at the fund level depending on on really what your lps want right like you work for the lps like that's right so it's like matching the risk they want with the return they want and finding in the market right um and uh we move things through the process maybe do reference calls more calls with the management team product demos blah blah and we get to the end of it um, and we try to, you know, to, to print a real assessment and say, yeah, like a yes or a no on a bet, right? Like that's all it is in the end of the day. Um, and so I think it's less about like whether we follow the same sequence. It's more just just trying to, I don't know, work harder or ask harder questions, hold certain things to a higher standard, making sure that we're backing really like the best teams, Um You know certainly think a lot today about network value i think a place that we're getting increasingly rigorous with um is when looking at tokenomics models like really making sure that the sinks and the faucets are all there and thinking about like what are the implications for um inflation over time um you know and and all that right i think it's really believing that um so jeremy who um who works at delphi um said this the other day in in the context of um, this this big research project he's doing but he said look the, the token is everything right like every like Token is, is what powers the entire economy. And like if you think about it, you know, the token is everything, then that's sort of like where a lot of focus has to go, right? We can't just get to a tokenomics situation and say players will make money, therefore they're gonna wanna come here and that's it, and, and sort of fund these types of businesses without thinking through like the actual revs that go through a tokenomic model and and sort of if um, supply and demand is, is fundamentally balanced or imbalanced in favor of um deflation um honestly um over the long term.
0: Okay, this is fascinating. I feel like there are like three cans of worms to to go down. Seems like first you're vetting by people and the the individuals, the team, and then you're looking at actually the the tokenomics and how the economy is is even structured there. Um and before before we kind of because I I would love to dive into each of those and, and understand how you're actually thinking about that, but at what point does just to uh, maybe almost jump the gun a little bit? But at what point does the actual gameplay and you know if we're thinking of crypto gaming, at what point does the gameplay come into consideration? In like, do you guys have like a group of a group of gamers that's like playing these things and testing them out? Like, how do you? How do you think about gameplay?
1: We are a group of gamers, man. Like if you look at the formation of the entity, it's, it's, um, Jens, who's one of the co-founders of ESL and G2 and a bunch of other things, a serial entrepreneur in esports. And it's Malta and Scott, who were, um, senior executives at MTG, which purchased um, ESL and did a bunch of gaming deals back then and have a background in engineering and being founders and all that stuff. Um. Morris, another guy on our team was a professional Diablo player. And like, there's just a bunch of, you know, like people that are high level League of Legends players and Rocket League players. And I played, you know, a, ton of, a bunch of different stuff, honestly. Um, so that's that's like table stakes. Um, I think like it's hard to find a non-gamer in our group. Um, it's something that we honestly interview around, right? Like it's it's part of who we are as a firm. It's part of our culture. Um, so definitely the gameplay comes into consideration. Um, it's just a lot of times it's difficult especially when you're funding in the early stages, it's difficult to find a balance between wanting to fund a big ambitious vision that you think will be truly differentiated in the market and you know is going to take two or three years to come true and wanting something that at the time of the investment is diligenceable and you can do a play test and you can like mess around with it, right? Like for the majority of the things, if they're big enough that we want to invest in them now for two years later, your demo is not going to be that compelling, right? Like you're going to get, you know, whatever. I mean, the exception to that, are um, studios that had been in web two here development for a long time and have had the chance to pivot either before launching a game or right as they were launching a game, and then they can come to you, and, and that's a little bit different. It's like, hey, here's a game, and here's the the tokenomics that we're attaching on top. That can, I don't know, right? We haven't seen these things in the market long enough. I think in some cases it can be great, um, but if you go back to what we just said, like the token is everything, like it, it really should be much more symbiotic between game development and token development. Um, And I don't think having just one of the two is is really
0: going to deliver. That makes a lot of sense. So it seems like y'all are gamers first. So you're, you're sniffing for a really good game. But that is such an interesting dynamic of the more, well, possibly the more fun the game will be, the grander the vision, the less you can touch it and feel it at the time of writing the check. That is such a I said. Dynamic. Which
1: is what I said is the edge that we've, all, we've always had as a firm. This is what we do.
0: Mm. Because you can see what it could be from the limited demo? Or like what exactly is that edge?
1: I, it almost sounds too prophetic to say like you can see what it's going to be from the limited demo. But I mean, it's a bunch of people who have been in the gaming industry for a very long time. Um, who honestly know how to find good teams that know the things all right like people who are very deep in the game and have done it before and people who can run really sound references on um, and talk to them deeply about design and know that at least they've considered the questions um versus sort of not even thinking because like we know people won't have have the answers all the time right but at least like people know what they should be worried about and all that um so the edge is really in, in underwriting The types of uh, teams and and ideas that can be backed, um, you know, for big visions early on.
0: That makes a lot of sense. So I kind of want to jump back to team. It seems like that's almost the first, well, is that the first litmus test or what comes first?
1: Definitely team.
0: Team. Okay, so then what are you looking for in a team that gives you both green and red flags
1: um experience and passion knowing that you can sometimes have a lot of experience and no passion and that's probably the wrong bet just given the entrepreneurial journey requires passion to push through um and you can have passion and no experience or limited experience in the case of very young teams, and those won't make sense all the time but oftentimes they can't right like i don't think We want to position ourselves as a firm that only backs people who are multiple time founders right like we're here to back innovation and 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 amazing products and more often than not the concepts that are backable are going to come from people who have both passion and experience but we're we're always trying to find you know great people just to bet on right um so i think like that's a lot of it um having a really clear vision of the product and the consumer and, and sort of having a a really good hypothesis of where they're going and why and Look, again, so many of amazing companies um, that, that exist today are sort of post-pivot, right? Like most of these things have had to pivot. Um, but ultimately, there's a difference between pivoting because you sort of set off in a, I don't know, journey without a destination and you didn't really know. And you don't sort of, you know, eventually one year later, you're like, ah, I haven't made any money and I don't know why. And like those are pretty hard. Versus people who start with a very clear thesis and that didn't work, but you know exactly what didn't work and you can go to the next one. And so it's really like a clarity of vision and a clarity of execution. Um, Because ultimately, one of the guys here, Seb, um, says it all the time. Like ideas over the medium medium term, like six months, like ideas are commodified or like execution isn't, right? Like over time, every idea, unless you have like a really good trade secret on like tech or something like that, like ideas are cheap. Um, it's really the ability to execute that sets people apart. And so I think everything ultimately comes to that, right? Like, do we like the idea? Sure. But then you're mostly underwriting execution.
0: And how do you, that was literally the next question I was going to ask. How do you underwrite that execution? Is that where the experience part comes in? Or are you just kind of taking your, the best, most educated guess that like, okay, most likely this person is going to execute at the level that they're talking about. Um, and, and for somebody that's new, how can they come in? I mean, they may be the next greatest executor of all time, but with no history. So like, how do you, how do you kind of parse through all the data and think about that?
1: Yeah. I mean, experience, um, references, uh, honestly, a lot of it comes through conversation when you're understanding, right? Like, how do you think about this and asking hard questions and getting answers and all that stuff. Right. Um, it's, it's way more art than science. Um, you know, I think. When there's numbers right when so think about like what made a lot of entrepreneurs and the mobile games boom um get funded is because, because all of a sudden developing a game um the cost drops significantly whether it's because of um, things like unity and, and sort of aws and whatnot but like fundamentally making simple games on mobile um that didn't cost much for you to bootstrap and then all of a sudden teams could come and they could say look i have this this prototype and my d1 my day one retention is 50 percent and my day seven retention is and you could be like, Oh, like, cool. Like I'll invest behind that. And it seems like you guys developed a really strong day one loop and, you know, let's go from there. Um, So, so data certainly helped in that case and it always helps where there is data. And frankly, a lot of times teams that don't have the experience have to pitch things that are, that are cheaper to test and that spit off data sooner. Right. So that you can touch it and feel it more. Um, And then the more experience and reputation and references and whatnot that you have, the more you're able to go to an investor and say, look, trust me.
0: That makes a ton of sense. And for those super early, it almost seems like you're just looking for data early on when you're, when you're first, first, first building and you're Uh getting your minimum viable product or, you know, minimum race funds on top of a bull product. Um, to like, just get as much data as possible. But like, what are you looking for in that product? Is it stickiness of customers? Is it people that are paying for it? Is it like, what are some of those important metrics?
1: So ideally you can get to a a CAC over LTV or a CAC yield, right? So for every $1 that I put in, how many dollars comes out? And you can create confidence that you can deploy significant um, user acquisition dollars under that CAC assumption um, and also under the LTV assumption, such that by the end of it, you have a a profit on the CAC over LTV um, big enough that you can finance the overhead, plus leave some cash flows behind for the equity, right? Like just simplistically. So that's that's like real world. most of the times, you're not going to have good CAC over LTV type analysis early on because you don't have an LTV or because your CACs are artificial because the product has spread over, you know, word of mouth or whatever it may be. Um, I think in general, especially historically, we'll see sort of how that changes through the cycle. But um, venture markets have been willing to finance in absence of CAC over LTV, right? In absence of a strong understanding of, you um, user economics or uh, unit economics, um, they have been able or they have been willing to, to, to finance scale, right? And so scale is a function of how many just people are using your product, right? Which will have a cap component to it, but, you know, just is the thing growing and is the thing retaining um, with the assumption being that eventually you can turn some monetization trigger on there, Um right? Like WhatsApp sold for 16 billion. And like now it's big people are beginning to test around monetization with microtransactions and things like that. And so many of these big tech acquisitions of the last 10 years or, you know, whatever, especially in consumer social um, have been um, pre-monetization and they integrate into something that can be cross sold and and whatever eventually people figure them out. Um, Ultimately what's happening there is um, venture markets are financing the consumer, right. So that the consumer can afford to have a product for free because they finance the, the deficit that the consumer brings onto the platform. And, um, you know, so far venture markets have been really willing to, to basically subsidize consumers. Um, and, you know, sometimes these things change, um, through the cycle. Um, but so far, so far, so good.
0: Do you, so you do expect that to continue where it's almost like a, cause what that says to me is that shouts the league of legends model the Riot model, where the game is free and then you monetize kind of on the back end through cosmetics. And once you get those first couple of purchases, then the floodgates are open and people are buying skins left and right. But in the beginning, it might be just a little, like they're they're not gonna just straight up put money in because they're not as invested at least that's what i've seen and you know being a player for a long time that's that's kind of what happened to me is that kind of what you're saying um, and do you expect that to change
1: um so first i think the the degree through which capital markets subsidize consumers is bigger than just this thing is free um you know whether it's grocery delivery uber um uh the electric scooters like basically like the majority of those businesses very late into their history were negative gross margin. Right. Um, and if you're a negative gross margin, then like very much like capital markets are directly uh, subsidizing that consumer. Um, and then eventually they go positive growth margin. And eventually they go positive operating margin. Right. So like that's the trajectory. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think ultimately, um, that's, that's what the venture markets exist for. Right. And I think that for as long as you have an abundance of capital, um, especially in 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 times where there's a lot of um, a lot of dry powder, a lot of new funds being raised, um, I, you know, the basically the more the more the more capital you get into the market, um, the more crowded the easy opportunities become. Um, yields compress throughout, right? Like that's like you just take a look at like a macro view, right? Like Treasury Treasury yields were down, the values were down, the growth like right, like all the yields compress. And um, through yield compression, investors increasingly seek more risk in order to reach a a benchmark of return, right? Because a lot of people think about it in terms of return versus in terms of risk. Um, And by doing that, um, what you ultimately get is a willingness to finance more and more of the the speculation on will this consumer ultimately stick, will this consumer ultimately pay. Um, And then in times of macro contraction, um, then the same way that you have a flight towards cash flow paying companies and, and sort of, you know, value stocks, just the growth stocks, and, you know, sort of the like those changes go, right? Like credit markets, equity markets, whatever markets, and then also um, into into venture markets where people are always going to finance these types of businesses because that's the purpose of the, the the industry as a whole is to finance those early stages where, where it is unprofitable to service that consumer, um, but, but people will finance it for less time, right? Like people will want profitability at the Series A instead of the Series D um, and sort of like the, the pendulum swings.
0: That's fascinating. So from the perspective of the actual projects that are raising or the, the startups, the companies, whatever that are raising, is it more advantageous to them to try to go as far as they possibly can without raising anything, to try to get as cash flow positive as they freaking possibly can? or approach it as, as close as they can before raising, or should they just try to go raise as soon as possible? Like how should they be thinking about this, um, given what we just learned?
1: Yeah, it will also come back to the macro cycle. Um, so like right now we're in a, in a very founder friendly environment. Um, and it's a really good time for founders to be raising because they can raise more at higher valuations, um, and get runway into their businesses. Uh, because people are being less strict with um, underwriting around profitability or, or whatever maybe right um if you wait until later um maybe you can get a better valuation because your metrics look better but also at the same time like the macro environment can shift and all of a sudden you know exogenous factors to your your own company stuff um force you into less valuation less capital raise less runway less all that right and so um, from an investor's perspective, it's like, yeah, wait until your metrics are perfect, blah blah. blah. But like realistically, founders are going to raise when they can raise, like when capital is cheap, um, and they shouldn't raise when capital is expensive, um, right? Like they should, like it's it's the same thing as um, buy low, sell high, right? Like founders mm-hmm. are selling um, their shares when they get funded, right? So it's like you sell high, uh, meaning you sell when there's a lot of investor demand for your for your product. Um, And you you don't sell when it's low um, if you can
0: avoid it. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. So raise when you can get the best valuations and you can get the most money for the cheapest. And then don't raise when it, you know, as much as you can hold off on that. Um, when the, the market's not as friendly to, to founders is kind of what I'm hearing. Um, so I know we went down a super rabbit hole, which I appreciate you going down with me. Um, but so the, okay. So we talked about team, we talked about gameplay. I'm fascinated by this idea of tokenomics and we've seen, even if you decide that you want to invest in a game, well, now you have to make an additional allocation decision of okay, do you want to invest in NFTs? And then within the NFTs, do you want the land? Do you want the characters? Do you want the accessories to the characters? And then if you don't want the NFTs, do you want the governance token? And if you don't want that, do you want the in-game currency? And sometimes there are multiple of those. So how do you all think through the tokenomics? And what are you really looking for before you're going to pull the trigger?
1: Um. At the macro level, we're looking for a network that has good alignment between stakeholders and good demand for its products, such that a lot of capital can circulate inside of that network. Because ultimately it's it's the demand for the token, a stronger demand than than supply that will push the price of the token up. And in for protocols that have um royalties or fees or anything like that it's the movement of money that will allow them to capture the transaction fees effectively right um so so it's really about network strength and thinking about like is this is this a world that people want to spend time on is this a a a system that will move money um so i think like that's that's honestly like a lot on on the token side the 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 nfts and, and sort of everything that comes with it um Maybe a bit controversial, but I think like early on, as a as a as a developer and the tokens to some extent too. But like when when you're selling NFTs, land, whatever they are, I think of them as um, a debt that you're taking against your community. The tokens are that way too, right? But um, I'm promising that I'm going to develop a digital world where your like where your thing will actually come to your land will actually come to existence, right? Or your armor, right? I'm promising that um, if you buy this now, I'll actually deliver the the, the, the digital thing to you later, um, and and you're raising money from your community, and ultimately, like if you can't deliver on those things, then um, then you're gonna lose your community, and you lose your community, you lose everything, right? Like that's that's the whole. The community is everything, um, and, you know, of, of Web three. And so, I think ultimately, it becomes about: um, Are the things that the the the, the games that the publishers and studios are selling to the consumers are they valuable to the consumer? Do they have high utility in the game? Can they actually be delivered and sustained and etc.? cetera? Um, and will consumers enjoy owning them, right? Like we certainly don't want to invest in things where you're just going to stuff your consumer with a bunch of stuff they don't want to use. And then, you know, a year down the line, the game comes out and it's like, why did I buy all this garbage? And then it's like, you know, not great. Right. You broke your bond to your community. Um, so I don't know. I, I think that's probably how I describe it.
0: Yeah. That makes a lot of sense for the, for the tokenomics that have been the most sustainable that you've seen and I think about this so 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 much because there are so few games who have actually made their tokenomics sustainable where they're not they don't just become farms where people will play they will get the token and then they will dump as quickly as humanly freaking possible to cash out right how have you seen the most successful of these models do this in a way that is actually sustainable over the long term?
1: Yeah, I, I just don't think we have great examples yet. Um, obviously, there, there are good games out there um, that are just starting, right? I mean, we certainly have um, um, public tokens in, in you know, different companies. And we're beginning to see like a hint towards that. I don't think we can talk about long-term success yet, right? And I think certainly with the games that exist today, um, a lot of what's embedded in, in, in the token and um, in, in sort of what people are investing in um, is the community, is the treasury, is their ability to, to use the huge um, user base that they have to migrate them onto a different game and to give them fun things. And like, there's still like very early on where there's, there's a lot being bundled into the investable tokens, um, versus them being judged exclusively by the sort of like the, the little loop that exists in there. Um, and I think that the games that exist now, the majority of them, I and mean, we're certainly seeing more and more things that release, I think like Q1, Q2, especially like this year is going to be really big for all this stuff. Um, but for a lot of the games, um, they're still in that V1.0 in that state where they figured out the farming loop and now it's on to them to deliver the, the fun stuff and whether it's like the NFTs and the minting and sort of just like more stuff, right? Um, so it doesn't make sense to sort of judge anything that exists now as good or bad because they're all prototypes that are at the, at the bleeding edge of, of creating the industry, right? Like you go think about, like you can talk about whatever you want about like the price of SLP and blah, blah, blah. But like, look at the end of the day, like, Axie has to find a category. They've catalyzed a community. They're a reference name um, that everyone wants to partner with, and um, you know, you're you're sort of betting on on something else there, not just on like the short P to E loop of um of of, of like breeding, right? Um, right? And so, yeah, I, I think I, I think there's nothing perfect out there that I can point to and say they've arrived. Um, but I also think it would be unfair of us to demand that that exists in the market today, um, seeing you know where we were a year ago. You know.
0: That makes a ton of sense. So it seems like this is still kind of a... We're totally in the wild, wild west. We're totally still experimenting. We're not exactly sure who the long-term winners are going to be because there hasn't been enough time that's elapsed to even declare this to be long-term by any means. But we do see some games totally cleaning up as far as user bases and traction in the marketplace so we we, maybe we can uh we can kind of park this one um and then uh, you know maybe in a year or two we come back and and we we see what uh what the developments have been um okay cool so one other thing i want to i want to Um, kind of touch on here and then I really want to understand more about your long-term vision of where this whole thing is going but I want to touch quickly on inflation and macro cycles and specifically the U.S. dollar right because I think that is going to be tremendously impactful to this whole market because well it's obvious so how are how are you thinking about all of these things, inflation, the U S dollar macro cycles and how that's going to impact. First of all, how, how do you think about it? How are you thinking about how to play it? And then how's that going to affect crypto gaming?
1: Man, that is so hard. Not being a macro trader, right? Like most of my information is from reading and listening to podcasts. Um, Devin Baker came out with a podcast and Invest Like the Best last week, in which he talked about how he thinks inflation is going to dry up, um, it's going to quickly revert, um, basically with reopening and, and sort of the overall, I think the stat was the, consume, the, the consumption of goods is up 50% over the historical average, and the wow. consumption of services is down 50% over the historical average, and these things should mean revert as people return to normal life and start purchasing more services and less goods and services just have different supply chain aspects to them. And I think like prices uh, work better there. Um, I think, you know, depending on, I guess for a lot of the services, not for all of them. Um, I think on the other end, um, you know, for a long time you had these crazy inflation prints and and sort of the whole it's transitory mean um, that, you know, I think it's, um now you're starting to see rate hikes and a more hawkish posture and, and sort of growth stocks correcting and, and sort of everything getting discounted different rate. Um, but you have this um, unusual feature that the, usually the government has hike rates when inflation was closer to historical you know, uh, means of 2%. The economy was overheated, asset prices were inflating, and they said, look, let's hike by 50 bips or, or whatever it is and, and sort of um, hiking not against a strong backdrop of inflation. And now it, at least for the market cycles that I've studied right like most of these have happened like before I was alive right so it's like it's it's hard onto itself just like trying to (laughs) learn about stuff like when I was like literally a baby or before I was born um but yeah I don't I don't think it's it's happened recently where um where we were seeing like inflation this high and and sort of hiking rates into it and trying to manage something that is like that much above historical um, needs and a huge shift of like the reopening plays and sort of a bunch of dry powder and the VC um, and growth spaces pushing growth valuations up and um, the implication that that has to the IPO market, right? Like there's just a lot of stuff that's happening that it it makes it impossible for me to like look you in the eye and say like, oh yeah, I think inflation can happen, whatever. Um, It it seems like it's really, really high and it seems like it's something that should get addressed, like that, like there's pressure on the government to address it, Um, but at the same time, it, it can be very costly to address it. And um, a lot of times markets and special interests dictate political cycles and sort of, you know, what well, people are willing to, the, the, the pill people are willing to swallow, uh, swallow versus pass it on, right? Um, and so I think it's hard. It's hard to, to know.
0: So when you're thinking about, though, as like an organization, when you take home bacon, uh, obviously meaning, you know, when you take profits and and you then – have to take profits in some sort of currency is there is there even a discussion of not taking that in u.s dollars and almost looking towards another reserve currency to protect against this um, this idea of potentially a drop of buying power from the u.s dollar or is it just business as usual and it's just something we have to bake into our models when making decisions
1: I think that to the extent that your cost basis is especially in token companies, right. And one, three companies, if you have a cost basis that is heavy with employees who are fine, making money in tokens, that gives you the ability to sort of function with this alternative currency. Right. Um, but your ability to, to sort of do that type of stuff is, is ultimately limited by people's dollar needs or whatever currency needs. And um, you know, they're, need to get paid in, in sort of currency right and you can give them the token but they'll immediately swap to, to usd right or to whatever it is um so it doesn't it doesn't seem to me that except for people who who are who already have a good amount of success who, who are either doing really well trading or who have been paid well historically or are being paid really well in crypto right now that they can afford to not be taking significant um Portions of their income in USD, right? Like if today I receive an offer, it's like, hey, we're going to start paying you in Bitcoin from now forward. Like that's fine, but I'm going to sell Bitcoin every month because I need dollars, right? Like I think like most people aren't there yet, um, and so and so the question then becomes like, you know, other currency. Um, I think that the, the the backdrop of inflation is is around the world. Um, you know, the, the primary cause of inflation has been. Um, stimulus around economies with um with covid right and i mean inflation is seven percent here and it's nine percent in brazil and it's sort of like high in most places and so i don't think you have other fiat to go to um and i think that the only people who really believe in the inflation as a, a bitcoin as an inflation hedge are people who are like really like really hardcore like i don't like i'm pretty core to the crypto thesis, right? Like I, I spend my whole time here and I'm not convinced that it's a short term inflation hedge. Um, and all of my crypto exposure is there because mm-hmm. I can put my discretionary income towards mm-hmm. believing sort of betting on this like huge transition, right? And so all this to say, like, I don't think that people are getting to the end of the day and making a lot of decisions based on inflation when it comes to what they're doing on their side. I think they're, they're making the decisions based on discretionary income and belief in the long term trends in the space.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really smart approach to it. Like don't don't bet the farm quite yet, but pay attention and and don't uh, don't sleep on the ability to have enough socked away or buried out in the backyard or wherever you, you know, wherever you store your acorns for winter to then be able to start um, taking other precautions as far as keeping some of your discretionary um, income in coins and starting to think about that, so it seems like get your get your house right first to where you have enough cash to survive, and then from there start thinking about other ways to um, you know to maybe not be as exposed to cash or or, uh, or the U.S. dollar might be might be a kind of rational way to to think about it.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, I just don't know how many people are, are going to make these like macro calls on inflation. I, like to me, I think that there's a, a way more compelling. Um, medium term gateway or, or sort of um, horizon of wanting to acc- accumulate digital currencies. Um, that's around a thesis of um, synthetic realities, which is what um, we're big believers here at the craft, which is, you know, the convergence of the, the physical and digital world and people spending more, more of their time digitally. Um, you know, I certainly wonder um, if for a lot of digital experiences that I will want to experience in the future, um, how likely they are to be paid for um in eth or some other cryptocurrency Um, and and that it's an interesting way to sort of it's almost like when when parents make like a college investment fund right and it grows over time and then when the kid's 18 like there's more money there it's almost like a little little college fund for when we all go to you know spend more more time in the metaverse than than here right Um, and thinking about sort of positioning for for digital lives and positioning for um Frankly, depending on on what time scale, um, what can be like a, a a change in the nature of like governments and geographies and travel, right? Like it's hard in the US because of global taxation, right? But I certainly, you know, if you're in a place that doesn't have global taxation, um, and you're thinking about like you're gonna live in all these other countries and maybe you want money that's like super portable and sort of you know, have a long-term thesis when you realize gains all the way up ahead you're right like there's all sorts of considerations around taxes and making a little piggy bank for for when we all upload uh, into the matrix
0: okay that's really fascinating yeah i appreciate you sharing that uh that idea so um i dude i have so many more questions i feel like we could (laughs) we could talk forever but i know we are we're coming close uh up to time so let's actually dive into that vision of the metaverse and Really how, oh, and by the way, maybe we could just get it on the table of like what your definition is of the metaverse. I feel pretty strongly about one, um, just for my own, you know, trying to understand the world and, you know, organizing with a little bit of structure in my brain and to understand the chaos. But I'd love to understand your version of what the metaverse actually means, what it is, the definition, and then where you see us going um, you know, in the future of, of this really grand, really fun experiment, um, and and uh, the convergence of crypto and gaming, and like some benchmarks along the way.
1: Yeah, I, I wish I had saved up some Matt Ball quote because obviously, you know, he's the emperor of the metaverse and the best person to define it. Um, I I think it's just. You know we have our, our physical universe and it's an abstracted version of the physical universe where we're all interacting with each other and with that reality or that um, derivative of reality in a digital way right like I think that your your boring experience of I don't know maybe attending a performance review in a 3D representation of yourself in the metaverse like that is the metaverse and so is a rave and so is playing Call of Duty. And it's this, this next layer of reality that frankly already exists. Um, we just don't think of it this way yet because it's not interconnected and because we're sort of simultaneously not only switching in and out of it, right on our phones and things like that, but also going from this app to this app to this thing to that thing. And it doesn't provide us a coherent vision. And so I think it's like the linking of that vision or the acceptance of that um, layer of reality as um, as something that's, carry pasu, basically um with the physical reality
0: yeah i i totally agree with you there I because a lot of people are like oh it's coming but i really think it's here like our phones are just portals into the metaverse because it's like everything not physical it's like everything digital is the metaverse so as far as like the But like the really cool stuff that it's going to get even better of like, you know, when gaming and crypto, that technology gets scaled out to whatever its logical conclusion is like, what do you think are the possibilities of that? And what are some of the more exciting ones that you maybe not even are taking big bets on, but just you're excited about and, and you're thinking about moving forward?
1: So I think that as we increasingly live digital lives, um, first, there's a massive efficiency gain from infrastructure and just like the benefits of technology and also forward-looking, like whether it's AI or whatever it is, um, that that a lot of time-consuming, boring things, like time gets freed up from those two other things, right? And like, that's certainly the, the history of technology overall, right? Like people spend less time doing time-consuming, boring things, and ideally right like more discretionary time um so I think that first you have an efficiency gain there um but then you also have um both the ability to do everything we already do today um although some experiences may not be compelling but for example um you know like whether it's it's games but it's also virtual work and and sort of like all the things we do today in that layer and then all the experiences that you can only do in that layer, because the laws of physics are removed and the identity and anonymity and sort of all types of constraints. Right. And so to me, that, that layer of a digital life, um, it's kind of really disturbing to say this, but it's like, it's a turbocharged version of like what we already have. Right. Like, as a matter of fact, if you go look back, um, you know, philosophical experiments, or like our questions from back in the day, so I was like, if we could plug you into a machine and you didn't know you were in the machine, like, would you live the rest of your a machine? It's kind of like, ah, like, I guess like most people would, right? If it's indistinguishable from physical reality. Um, and so I, I certainly think that like the ultimate vision is um, a space that enables you to do everything you can do in this space or most of everything, right? Certainly everything that's um, detached from like the most physical things that we have. Um, and then also goes a step beyond and leverages the detachment from the physical to, to magnify and provide new experiences that aren't possible here in all of this in a context of, um, different identities and your, your ability to be yourself in a bunch of different ways and all the, all the different layers of of self that are permitted as part of like all the places you can go in that digital layer, right? Like it's, it's a bit of a fractal crazy thing. I don't know.
0: It sounds like what you're describing is complete and total freedom in all aspects.
1: That'd be a nice vision, wouldn't it?
0: Yeah. That's what I'm hoping for. I mean, that'd be sweet. We could be having this conversation, riding dragons, looking over, you know, the magical cosmos. Yeah,
1: like at some point, like those experiences get compelling enough that, you know, you can choose to go grab a coffee with someone. But like digital experiences keep getting better and better and better. Now, I think the difficulty against the backdrop of technology and all that that we're probably going to accomplish is like... A species is um, how to get people to still care about the environment and physical things and physical relationships, right? It's like how do you preserve the the uniqueness of our physical experience um, against the background of technology? Although to be fair, right, like the the digital experience is certainly much more unique than physical experience because we and the plants and the animals, like everyone, has a physical experience, right? Like the digital one is like actually like way way more unique. Um, but I guess like there's still a lot of nostalgia attached to the physical one that you know the, the baseline instinct is to want to preserve what's best and, and and great about it.
0: Well, do we even need to do we even need to try to push that, or do we just let the humans decide where and how they want to spend their time? Because I think oh, some yeah. faction I'm, I'm a will be. Person. Yeah, mm-hmm.
1: I'm a markets person, right? I think people just put out great experiences out there and great experiences win and not great experiences don't <clears throat> certainly don't think there should be a a non-market um authority steering people one way or the other um but you know like how i forgot um the guy that wrote um sapience um the last chapter of sapience um touches on how we're, we're entering the age of the cyborg or basically right? i think if i remember correctly right it's because people have implants and you know look at a Neuralink and blah blah am like we're certainly crossing over that cyborg line and then the digital line too
0: and we also have advanced advancements in genetics so we'll have like normal humans genetically modified humans cyborgs genetically modified cyborgs and then it's like well this gets really confusing really fast (laughs) what what are we
1: just gotta watch enough star Trek by the time we get there (laughs)
0: exactly watch sci-fi prepare yourself
1: exactly the, the model is going to be like asimov and whatever else
0: <laughs> that's awesome well carlos i want to thank you so much for for coming on the show today uh really uh i just want to express my gratitude for the the very uh, intellectually stimulating conversation um and and really um the generosity with your time um of you course, know, know man. you're a busy man so i really do appreciate yeah. that
1: it's, it's a pleasure being here. Thank you so much. And, um, yeah, it, it was, it was a pleasure talking to you.
0: Well, could we just have one last bit of hopium, uh, for, for those who, you know, maybe, maybe needing it right now.
1: Sure. But how on what? what,
0: whatever your most, whatever you have the most about for the future, what can we, you know, what is your Carlos's uh dose of hopium for today?
1: Listen, so, man, I, I love video games and video games keep getting better. I think we can count on like some really good video games <laughs> going forward um, and um, hopefully enough advancements in technology to stave off a climate disaster so we can uh, you know enjoy our lives on this planet longer and play more video games. That's right. See each other more, go out. I don't know.
0: Plant trees so we can game more.
1: Plant trees so we can game more, man. <laughs>
0: <laughs> awesome carlos you're the man thank you everybody watching and listening thank you all i will see you all on the next episode take care now